0: This deaf man was the one that Mark chose to say that is the perfect representation for me to write this down to show the readers how God is fulfilling the scripture, how this particular miracle is the perfect representation to say the kingdom of God is here. doesn't want to heal from a distance he doesn't want to heal from the other side of the room he wants to interact he wants to touch he wants to be near so they ask him to come and lay his hands on him verse 33 and taking him aside meaning the man and taking him aside from the crowd privately he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue and looking up to heaven he sighed and said to him efata that is be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. So that is quite an odd sequence of events for us. And one of the things that we must caution ourselves at the beginning here is to remind ourselves to just endeavor to not place upon ancient cultures modern social mores, modern social customs, modern social taboos it's important for us to understand we are talking about a different culture in a different time that did not have the same cultural taboos that we have today. If I were to spit, and then whether it's, whether Jesus spat on the ground or whether he spat on his finger, we're not told. If I were to do that and then touch your tongue, then you would be quite shocked, rightly so, because we don't do that in our culture. But this is a different culture. So let's be careful not to associate our present-day social, social norms with Jesus's culture. But nevertheless, isn't it still such just an odd way of going about this? So the first question to ask ourselves, really before we even begin looking at the miracle, the first question to ask is why is this miracle here? Because Jesus, as we've said countless times before, Jesus healed innumerable numbers of people. He healed thousands and thousands of people. And of the thousands of people that he healed, we have only the account of just a handful of those whom he actually healed. So the accounts that we have, the Holy Spirit has obviously selected these accounts for a reason. So the first question to ask ourselves is, why would Holy Spirit choose such an odd miracle in such an odd place? Certainly this wasn't the only deaf person that Jesus healed. Why would Holy Spirit choose this man This occasion, this miracle, what is it about this that Holy Spirit wants us to see? And so to begin answering that question, I think that the place to begin is to remind ourselves of Mark's purpose, Mark's purpose statement. Mark is one of the most disciplined writers that we find in the New Testament. I believe that he is perhaps the most disciplined gospel writer, meaning the very first sentence of his gospel told you what his purpose was. And every sentence that followed that also was put there for the furtherance of that purpose. If you've ever written an academic paper, then you know the importance of negative editing, taking out all those things that just don't have to be said. If it doesn't have to be said, this is what I was taught in seminary, if it doesn't advance your argument, take it out. If it doesn't move the ball down the line to the goalpost, it doesn't need to be there. It either moves the ball or take it out altogether. And that's how Mark has written his gospel. Everything is moving the ball toward the goal line. The goal line is the conclusion in which the centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God. So everything that he writes is moving us down that. And so that's what the purpose statement was. Remember what it was, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark is at pains to show us this this man, Jesus, The good news that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the son of God and he has come. That's the whole point of Mark's gospel. And everything that he says in the gospel wants to advance that. It wants to convince you of the identity of Jesus Christ. It wants to convince you of the goodness of the news that Jesus is the son of God and to convince you of not only the goodness of the news, but the reality of the news that he has come to us. And so as we look at this, uh, this passage through that lens, what is this saying to us about the good news that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God and he has come? So to begin seeing this, let's look once again at how the man is described. Verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Now that word that's translated speech impediment is the word mogilalon. That's you say, well, that's really interesting. Not really. Well, actually, that is not the standard word for mute. A couple dozen times in the New Testament, mute shows up. The word mute shows up. In fact, it's going to show up in chapter 9 when we think about the father whose son was possessed of the demon and the demon, we're told, was a mute demon and it made his son mute. Different word is always used altogether, every time. And that word just simply means the absence of the ability to speak without the ability to speak. That's what the word that's translated mute always means. This is not that word. Instead, this is a different word that literally means deeply constrained to form proper sounds. It means that his mouth is severely impeded from the ability to form proper sounds. He can form sounds But the formation of proper sounds is something that he's just unable to do. And it's a severe impediment. It's a strong word. And it only shows up this one time in all of our New Testaments. Out of a couple dozen times that we come across people who are unable to speak, this is the only time that this particular word is used. So then we ask ourselves, was there significance to that? Is there significance that Mark seems to intentionally have used a word that elsewhere he uses the normal word for mute, but is there, is there a reason that he uses this unique word here? So then we look throughout the rest of our New Testament. We don't find it anywhere in any of the Gospels. In Acts, we don't find it in any of the epistles. But then when we turn to our Old Testament, and our Old Testament was, as we know, written almost completely in Hebrew. About half the book of Daniel and parts of the book of Ezra are written in Aramaic, but, but nearly the entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But we also remember that a couple of generations before Jesus' time, the Old Testament scriptures were translated into the language of the day, which was Greek, and that's known as the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is very significant for us. It's significant because that tells us that when the Hebrew scholars were translating the Old Testament's, The Greek words that they chose were very meaningful because that shows us how they understood their Old Testament scriptures. You follow what I'm saying? So the Septuagint is helpful for us in that way. So when we turn to the Septuagint and we look for this one word, we find that it is absent in all of the Old Testament except for, you guessed it, one place. It shows up in the New Testament one time, in the Old Testament exactly one time and the place that it shows up in the old testament is in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6. You probably have a footnote at your bible in your bible that tells you so much. All right, so Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6 say this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Verse 6, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the and here it is, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So there we found our word. That's the only other time it shows up in scripture and you say, well, okay, still not quite sure what the significance of this is. So to see the significance, let's just do what we always, what's always helpful for us to do. And let's just look at this within the context. Context, context, context. You can never leave the context behind or you'll end up in trouble. So let's back up just a little bit in Isaiah's prophecy, back to, uh, say, the beginning of chapter 34. And when we back up to the beginning of chapter 4 and begin to see the context that leads up to this statement, this statement that quite plainly and quite obviously is beyond question that Mark had this statement in mind when he wrote that verse. Clearly, Mark had this verse in mind when he wrote that one. So what about that verse? What about the context tells us? What was Mark thinking? What's this leading us up to? So if we go back to the beginning of chapter 34, we find that what's beginning at chapter 34 is Isaiah begins to pronounce God's judgment upon not Israel, but the nations. God is pronouncing his judgment upon the (coughs) sinful nations, the nations who don't have his law, but nonetheless, They know that God exists and God has created them, Romans 1. And they have sinned against this God that has created them. They failed to worship Him properly. So they know that they stand condemned. And God is pronouncing judgment upon the nations. And so I'm just going to read parts of this chapter beginning from verse 1, just sort of sections. You'll you'll quickly sort of get the idea. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. You've sinned. The nations have sinned against the Lord. And by the way, where is Jesus? He's in the nations. He's not in Israel. He is in the nations. He's outside of Israel now. But God is declaring that they have sinned and he's declaring his wrath against them. The Lord has a sword, it is sated with blood, it is gorged with fat, the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. So Isaiah is painting this picture, this picture of a God who has lost patience. He has used all the patience. He has been patient and long-suffering for the nations, yet his patience is expired and his wrath is coming. And Isaiah is painting a picture. It's a picture. It's a, a long drawn out word picture, if you will. It's a long drawn out metaphor for the wrath of God against sinful man. So continue to listen to this metaphor here. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch. So the streams turned into pitch or turned into tar and her soil turned into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day, it shall be quenched. I'm sorry, it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation, it shall lay waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Now listen to this. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, There the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in the shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Now, those words, again, what Isaiah is doing is he's drawing, he's painting a lengthy word picture. As we listen to those words and phrases we again must be careful not to understand them as the modern person because they weren't written to the modern They were written to, to all people, but they were written to a culture, not ours. And so our modern culture, in our modern day, we hear these images such as the hawk will protect her eggs and the land will belong to the porcupine and the hawk. And we hear those images and we think, what a wonderful picture. What a wonderful picture of nature being left alone and nature just growing up as as God intended it to be. And the reason we think that is because we're moderns, is because we live in a modern world, a modern world that has tractors and machinery, a modern world in which the conquest of nature is no longer something that's up in the air. Because we have machinery and we we have we have the ability to eke out our living. We don't have, we don't live our lives in subject to the power of nature, such as these people did. So the image for the ancient person, for Isaiah to paint this image of the land returning to the hawk and to the porcupine, and now it's the abode of, of the ostrich. That's not a pleasant picture for the ancient person. Instead, that's a picture of disaster. That's a picture of defeat. That's a picture of the wrath of God taking the hard bone-numbing work of taking some of the land back from the thorns and thistles and the hawks and the bear and cultivating it to eke out a living. That's a picture of all that Bone-breaking hard work going back to the animals. You see? We would think of that totally different because we got bulldozers today. And we don't think of making a field, a field that can grow crops that we can grow food and eat, and being sustained by that. We don't think of that in terms of just such hard battle against nature, against the animals that would take it back and the thorns that would take it back. But these are the days in which tools were a stone tied to a stick or a crude metal tool. And in these days, the the imagery of the land going back, reverting back to being completely dominated by the wildlife and the animals was a picture of God's abandonment, of God's judgment, a picture of disaster, a picture of death because once the land then goes back reverts back to the to the rule of the animals of the land then the humans can't live. It's not like they can, well, our crops kind of fail, let's just go down to the supermarket and we'll have guess, guess we'll have to just buy groceries for the winter. That that wasn't an option. You see? So you see what God, what Isaiah is painting for the picture for the people, the picture that he's painting is not a pleasant picture of nature. Instead, it's a picture of disaster. And the disaster is being brought upon them because of their sin. So God is saying to them, you have sinned. You stand before me as condemned sinners. And this is the wrath that I'm pronouncing will come upon you unless the one who delivers you from your sin comes to you. Because you see, in scripture, when God speaks of his coming wrath, virtually every time he does that, he also gives hope. Whenever he speaks of the wrath that is to come, virtually every time he will say, unless you repent, or until that blessed day, that blessed day when the rescuer comes to deliver you from this sinful state that you are in. And that's exactly exactly where Isaiah is taking this. So now, that was the end of chapter 34. If we continue into the beginning of chapter 35... We begin to read this and listen to how the picture now changed. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Do you see that? They shall see the glory of God. They shall see the majesty of the Lord. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Who has an anxious heart? In the story, who has an anxious heart? Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. Your God will come. He has pronounced this doom and barrenness of the land. The bears are taken back over. The thorns have overgrown. And it's a picture of desolation. But he says, fear not for your God will come. Your God will come and he will come and save you, says Isaiah. He will come. Now remember, that's the purpose of Mark. The purpose of Mark is to say, not he will come. He has come. The purpose of Mark is to say, Jesus of Nazareth, the good news is that he is the son of God and he has come. So right after that beginning part of Mark's gospel, if you think way back to chapter one, when we're, we, we start everything off on the note, Jesus is the son of God, Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God and he has come and this is good news. Right after that, we hear the ministry of John the baptizer who is proclaiming the one who will come. I'm here to make straight the the path, to make straight the road for the Son of God, for Messiah to come. And where is John proclaiming this message from? Remember? The wilderness? Anybody remember that? He's proclaiming this from the wilderness. What's What's God pronouncing the judgment? How is God pronouncing the judgment? The judgment is... The wilderness is going to overtake you. Right after John's prophecy from the wilderness, where does Jesus go? Into the wilderness to be baptized, to be anointed. Where does he go immediately after that? Further into the wilderness, deeper into the wilderness, into the metaphorical wilderness that he's talking about here. The wilderness will overtake you. The nations will be overtaken by the wilderness as consequence of your sin. Now, John the baptizer is here to say, God is coming. I'm here to pronounce. I'm here to announce to you he's coming. And he makes that announcement from the wilderness. Jesus goes to him in the wilderness. He's anointed, goes deeper into the wilderness, endures his time of testing. And then he emerges from the wilderness. And what's the first thing he says? Chapter 1 verse 15. The kingdom of heaven is here. I'm here to proclaim. The kingdom of heaven is here. Do you see the significance? From out of the wilderness, the Son of God comes to say, The kingdom is here. Now, from out of the wilderness, the Son of God comes. Perhaps that was the reason for his long journey through the nations, so that upon exiting this long journey from the through the nations, he is now here to proclaim, the Son of God is here. God pronounced the curse. The curse was that. All of your civilization would revert back to wilderness, but out of the wilderness you will be saved and out of the wilderness comes the Son of God to proclaim the kingdom of God is here. Now, listen to what Isaiah says next. Then, he's just said, he will come to save you. Your God will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped And the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute. And there's our word. There's our word that connected this passage to what just happened in Mark chapter 7. Then the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. And then he sums it up by saying, For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see, what Jesus is doing here is this is a powerful word picture to say to the nations, the Son of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. And it was prophesied hundreds of years ago. The way that you would know this is that out of the wilderness would come your Savior. And when he came, the blind would see, the deaf would hear, The mute would sing and streams of living water would come forth from the wilderness. The connection is unmistakable. It's beyond question that Mark had this passage in mind when he recounted this miracle. Mark could have recounted any of thousands of miracles, but he chose this one, and this situation to recount to us this, this particular miracle because this is saying the same thing in essence that Jesus answered John the baptizer. When John the baptizer in Matthew 11 is losing faith and he sends the message to say, are you really the one that is to come that we've been waiting for? Jesus answers him by saying, send word to John. Say to John, tell John what you're seeing. Tell John that you're seeing the blind see and the deaf hear, and the mute speak, and the lame walk. Tell him that. In other words, Jesus is saying, John knows his scriptures well enough to know that God told us centuries ago that when you see that, it means that the Son of God has come upon you, that the kingdom of God has come upon you, which is what Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, that the kingdom is here the kingdom is now here which is the purpose of Mark's whole gospel. So this is why this particular miracle is recounted for us because this one man, most likely one of hundreds of deaf people that Jesus healed, this deaf man was the one that Mark chose to say that is the perfect representation for me to write this down to show the readers how God is fulfilling the scripture, how this particular miracle is the perfect representation to say the kingdom of God is here.